Bible tonight, if you would please, to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua 22. How many of you here tonight, or does anybody here remember the end of World War II? Okay, we've got a few people. Uh, if you are not old enough to remember it, and I don't think there's anyone here old enough probably that, have, that fought in the war, I don't think. But if you're old enough to remember it, or if you're not old enough, I should say, at least you probably have read something about the end of World War II and about the jubilation that took place when uh, Germany surrendered in May of 1945 and then Japan in August of 1945. When soldiers started coming back home from war, that was just a wonderful time of celebration. Every year on uh, December 7th, there will be a piece in the paper about survivors of Pearl Harbor. And it's interesting to read that sometimes because you read about uh, the memories that these folks had of having experienced that and thinking about the the comrades that people fought with during the war and just remembering uh, certain things about it, and especially those that were that were blessed enough to have survived such an event. On several occasions, I, I talked with Frank Tharp about his experiences in the war, and one of the things that would really kind of uh, bring a gleam to Frank's eyes when he started talking about some of the people that he remembered that he served with. And just to think back over that, uh, uh, just the uh, good, good times that he had and the soldiers that he was able to make friends with. And, and it was just a special bond that exists between two people who have been through such a thing. Uh, this is sort of the idea when we come to Joshua chapter 22, in this particular place of Joshua... Because the battle for Canaan is now over, and these old soldiers that had fought so bravely with one another, they're now ready to go home, and they're going to go back to their places where they're going to live, and they're going to start their life in their new land. Chapter 22 begins with Joshua dismissing the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh to their inheritance that was on the eastern side of Jordan. And as he speaks to them, he applauds them for carrying out their duty, But then when they were dismissed, they did something that raised the ire of the other tribes. And actually what they did almost caused a civil war to erupt in Israel. And they just won these great, great battles and they'd fought so valiantly together. And yet these three or two and a half tribes do something that really makes the rest of the tribes angry. And so they almost end up fighting one another. So we're going to talk about that incident in the message tonight, and we're going to discuss the subject, when your motive is right, but your method is wrong. So please stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 22, and we're going to discuss then what happens in the rest of the chapter. Verse number 1 says, Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren, as he promised them. Therefore, now return ye, and get you unto your tents, and unto the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side Jordan." But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them, and sent them away, and they went under their tents. Our Heavenly Fathers, we 
bow in prayer tonight. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us here once again. We ask you, Lord, that you might bless as we consider this subject tonight and help us to learn something from your word that will encourage us in our lives as we serve you. So bless in the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's interesting to read what different commentators have to say when they make comments about this first section of Joshua chapter 22. Most of, uh, most of them refer to this very moving and touching scene as these soldiers are ready to depart from one another. As I said a moment ago, they had served together. They fought valiantly together. But here they are, and they're ready to part company. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, titles this particular chapter a Farewell to Arms. And, of course, that's an allusion to Ernest, Ernest Hemingway's uh, novel about, the world, about World War I. And then also Warren Wiersbe, when he comes to this chapter, he, he titles this, And When the Battle's Over. And that is a reference to a song. And when the battle's over, we shall wear a crown in the new Jerusalem. So what we have here is really just a, a moving picture, just a wonderful scene as these soldiers shake hands. And I can imagine in my mind that they give one another a bear hug and they're ready to leave. Arthur Pink has an interesting comment on verse number 5 where Joshua gives the charge to these two and a half tribes. And he points out that Joshua's concern is not for their physical well-being, but what he has to say to them is totally spiritual in nature. And Pink says this, No instructions were furnished for the fortifying of their cities or for the cultivation of their land, the whole emphasis being placed upon the regulating of their spiritual lives. And that's an important comment, and a great comment, because it speaks to the most important aspect in Israel, and also the most important aspect of our lives today. There are too many of us that we are so concerned about material things and physical things that we begin to push our spiritual lives onto the back burner, and we're really not too concerned about God's, God's uh, intervention and working in our lives. Well, the very thing that will make us the most successful and cause us to be the happiest in our Christian lives is the very thing that we push off to the side and we pay no attention to. When Jesus spoke the words, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, he didn't speak those words lightly. They weren't spoken idly. Because if a Christian begins to look at the material aspects of his life and pushes God to the side then he's really no better than the children of Israel. When they started to go after false gods, they made another god their god, and that's exactly what a Christian does when material things start to take the place of spiritual things. Those things become an idol. They become a false god to you. Paul puts it this way. Uh, he was always putting the Christian life in terms of warfare and of battles. He said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him, who had chosen him to be a soldier. So Joshua was not concerned about their physical well-being. He wasn't too concerned about how well that their farms were due and, uh, would do. And, and the reason that he wasn't was because he knew that God would take care of all of that. If they would just dedicate themselves, if they would follow the Lord, if they would keep the commands of Moses, then God would take care of all material things and they would never have to worry about it. So what we have here is really just a great beginning in this chapter. Everything looks fine. Joshua commends the soldiers. He tells them what a, what a great job that they'd done in fulfilling their duties. And then Joshua dismissed them with a blessing. But now comes the strange part. Because these two and a half tribes do something that really sets the rest of the people off. 
and really comes within just a hair's breadth of starting a war in Israel. Look at verse number 9, if you would, please. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan, to go unto the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, whereof they were possessed according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Now, I I hope that everybody remembers where this two-and-a-half tribe received their inheritance. Their inheritance is on the eastern side of Jordan. They decided that they were not going to move into the promised land and live with the rest of the children of Israel because when Israel was first coming to the promised land and before they crossed the Jordan, these two-and-a-half tribes saw that the land was fertile. They saw that there were plains there, there were grasslands there, and they had a lot of livestock. They had much cattle, and so they decided that it would be so much better for them if they would just stay on the eastern side of Jordan and live there, then they would, that's the land that they wanted. Well, Moses was willing to grant that request, but he said, before you can do that, you have to come over and fight with the rest of Israel to subdue all the land of Canaan. Now, if you'll come and fight and take up your responsibility there, then when all the battles are over, then you can return to the eastern side of the Jordan and take your inheritance there. Well, at this time, that had been done. The war is over. They'd served their time in the military, and so now they're ready to go home. But now look what they do in verse number 10. And when they came under the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben... And the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. And this is the problem. They decided they were going to build a separate altar, one that had not been commanded by the Lord, and they were building it on their side of the Jordan River. So it looked like that what they were doing was separating themselves from Israel. They are now going to hold their own religious services. They'll make their own sacrifices. They'll serve God in the way that they want to in their own place of worship. And so that incensed these other tribes because no one had the right to offer sacrifices except those sacrifices were made at the temple or at the tabernacle at that time, I should say. The priest of the tabernacle, they're the only ones that can make sacrifices. Remember last week we talked about Shiloh. That's where they set the tabernacle up. And if Israel was going to worship and make sacrifices, that's the place that they had to go. So God was very explicit about this when he gave Moses the commandments. He said, you're going to worship at the tabernacle, there you'll make sacrifices, and the priests of God are the only one that has the right to make those sacrifices. Well, these people decide, it looks or it looks like they've decided to do something otherwise. And no sooner had Joshua uh, given the tribes their charge and said, here's what you need to do, and had given the blessing, told them to obey the laws of Moses, no sooner than they had done that, than it looks like they're going to do the exact opposite. Right here, they're going to disobey the law. So what did Israel do? Well, they became very angry about it. Notice verses 11 and 12. And the children of Israel heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. So what we see here is just a strong reaction by these people. They were not going to let this stand. Now, let's notice some things about this, and we're going to look at the rest of the story. 
As Paul Harvey says, now comes the rest of the story, and that's what we're going to look at. Number one, first thing I want us to notice about this is that response to error must be swift and strong. Response to error must be swift and strong. Immediately upon hearing this news, Israel was ready to jump up and they were going to do something about this. Now, at this point of their history, they're just fresh off the battle. Their hearts had been stirred up. They'd gone in to fight in this land. God had promised to give a victory, so they went in following the Lord their God. And just as God had promised, God did, in fact, deliver this land into their hands. So here we're at a time when when we could say that patriotism is at an all-time high in Israel. And so what they're doing here, they're saying, we're not going to allow anyone to defy God. We're going to keep everybody on the straight and narrow. We're not going to infringe upon any blessing that God has given. And so what they were actually doing was defending the honor of Jehovah God. So they stepped up and they made a swift and strong reaction to what these people were doing. Now, in this we see, first of all, that they had a desire to exalt God. What they wanted to do was to put God first... All other considerations will be put behind. That would become secondary. And they really showed a great enthusiasm for serving God. And would to God that we would show that same kind of enthusiasm. If God's people would only stand up for God and stand up for His Word, no matter what the world says, we would be in a much better place. But unfortunately, what we have today is that we're all concerned about political correctness. And so you can go in churches and you can find, indeed, they want to be politically correct. And so they don't treat or don't preach the truth as they should any longer. They're afraid to do that because when truth is preached, it it offends people. It alienates people. And so they won't preach the truth. What we have today is the age of the purpose-driven church. And essentially what that says is that whatever you want the church to be and whatever you want God to be, then we can make that happen for you. We can make the church exactly what you want, and we can give you a God that you'll be very happy with, and you can serve him in the way that you want. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, The seeker-sensitive churches, uh, what they try to do is make the church appealing to the world. And so they bring in the worldly music, they bring in a worldly atmosphere, and what they're trying to do is to put the people at ease so that they'll feel at home and in their natural element. And so church won't be offensive to them at all. And so going to church is just like anything else that they would do. And so you find out that people dress down at church. Uh, Going to church is almost like a stint at the nightclub anymore. There's no doctrine that's preached that's going to make people uncomfortable. And here's what happens. Whenever you decide that you're going to leave people in their natural element, then what you do is you leave people in their natural sins. They do not understand who God is in the proper way that they're to worship Him. Now, what I believe is that we are to exalt God. And any time that there is a doctrine or practice that denigrates or takes away from the power, the might, and the sovereignty of Almighty God, that's a doctrine that we ought to deny. It's a wrong doctrine. On our missionary questionnaires, we have a question that we ask to prospective missionaries. And this question is, is your theology God-centered over against man-centered. And do you know that I've never had even one questionnaire that came back where a missionary circled, well, no, my theology is man-centered, not God-centered. None of them do that. But then when I begin to read the answers to the other questions, I find out that indeed their theology is man-centered, and they don't really even understand what that question says. 
Is your theology God-centered or man-centered? When I get a questionnaire that comes back and says that man is not afflicted with total inability, then that person is automatically saying that their theology is man-centered. And what they're saying is that there's something that's in man that allows him to respond to God and to make a choice for God as simply a volitional choice in which the Holy Spirit is not involved, in which irresistible and, and uh, infallible calling by the Holy Spirit is not a part of that. And when they say that, they have a theology that is man-centered, not God-centered. What we have to have are churches and pastors that will stand up and exalt God. That's what the Israelites did. Then also, they had a desire to obey God. God said that wherever the tabernacle is, that's the place that you're supposed to go to worship. The tabernacle and the altars for Israel were at Shiloh. And they weren't to build any altars anywhere else. They weren't to make sacrifices anyplace else. And so Joshua's command to these two and a half tribes is, take diligent heed to do the commandment of the law. They said, he said, cleave unto the Lord, cleave unto him, serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. That doesn't leave a whole lot of room for the will of man, does it? Serving God with all of your heart and all of your soul will put obedience to God absolutely first. Joshua was not concerned about all their hearts and all their soul being placed into farm work and making a living for themselves. He just simply says, obey God. Now, the reason that Joshua and and Israel are so concerned about this is because if these tribes go into apostasy, then what would inevitably happen is the rest of Israel would begin to follow them. And there is a very clear connection here. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said, A clear connection is made between the disobedience of one and the sufferings of many. Look at verse number 17. Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us from which we are not cleansed until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord? What that's referring to is that little incident with Balaam. Everybody remember the story of Balaam? I don't have time to go through all of that tonight, but, but Balaam was a false prophet. And Balaam was assisting Moab in trying to defeat Israel. And one of the things that he recommended was that Israel would begin to intermarry with the Moabites. And if they did that, then God would curse his own people. Balaam wouldn't even have to give him a curse because God would do it. And so the people started to intermarry with the Moabites. And in fact, this is what God did. He caused a plague to come upon a people. And if my memory serves me right, I believe there were 24,000 people that died in that plague. So the iniquity of Peor, they said, is that not enough? Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us from which we are not cleansed until this day, though there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it will be, seeing you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. So they said, if you don't stop this disobedience, if you don't give that up, then the next thing that's going to happen to us is God is going to be angry with the entire nation, and there is another plague waiting for us right around the corner. And that seems to be the exact thing that Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians when he found out that there was a a sin in the church. There was a man there who was uh, in a wrong kind of relationship, living in fornication with his stepmother, then... Paul said, you get rid of that man. You get rid of that sin. Deal with the sin. And then he went on and he said, don't you know that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? 
And what he meant was, is when you let a little bit of sin get into the church, it's not going to be long before that sin permeates the entire body, and then God has to bring judgment on us all. Now later, that's what happened at Corinth. The people refused to turn to God as they should, and so God did in fact cause some of them to die. In fact, it was somewhat related to, and and, uh, we're going to get into this a little bit later as we study 1 Corinthians, but it was related to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to observe tonight. They weren't observing it correctly, and so God had to take some of their lives. And folks, this is the exact reason why we practice discipline in Berean Baptist Church. It's why it's so necessary. Israel had to do it. And it's because we do not want the entire congregation to suffer the chastisement of God. Sin has to be removed from the church. And so in Israel, the reaction to this sin is swift and strong, and they are ready to to fight to defend the truth. Now what we need are preachers who are willing to defend the truth. What we don't need are any milquetoast, mamby-pamby preachers like Joel Osteen who never saw a sin that he couldn't tolerate. We don't need those kinds of preachers. We need preachers that are not afraid to preach against sin. Now, not with, so with these people. They weren't afraid of it, and it ought not to be the same way with us. The response to error has to be swift and strong. Now, so far, everything that I've said probably seems pretty militaristic. And when I talk about sin in this way, you might even get the idea that I'm angry about this and that Israel was so angry that it clouded their judgment. But that's not true because they were very concerned about it, but they tempered their concern with good judgment and mercy. They wanted to do it right and to get it right. So here's the next thing that we see. Reconciliation may require personal sacrifice. Reconciliation may require personal sacrifice. The, the rest of Israel was very unhappy about this altar, but they didn't want to see their brothers fall. And so they were willing to do everything to make sure that that didn't happen. They wanted to straighten out this matter, even if it came at their own personal expense. So how did they do this? Well, in verses 13 to 15, they sent representatives from each of the ten tribes that were on the uh, western side of the Jordan. They sent them to check this thing out and to find out the matter to see exactly what was going on. And that's, that's a totally biblical response. This is exactly what we studied about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, when there's sin in the church, the thing that you do, you don't immediately pounce on someone and try to pound them into the ground. What you do is you try to find out what the problem is and you try to correct that problem. And that's exactly what Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 18. You send somebody to deal with that person who sinned. You find out what the problem is and you try to bring them back. You try to correct them. You try to fix it and get everything straightened out so everybody can live in peace and harmony again. Now sometimes what happens in church discipline is that people are just over anxious and over eager to find out somebody's sin. And so what do they do? Oh, they act like it's really joy and glee to find out what somebody has done. And this is the very thing they want to do. You are not as holy and righteous as I am, so I'm going to stomp on you with both of my feet. Well, that's not what Israel did. It's a wrong attitude for us to do it. Now, Israel comes across with the right attitude. Here's what we see from them. They were willing to go the extra mile. They were willing to make a personal sacrifice to make this happen. So they loved their brothers. I mean, they'd fought side by side with these men, and they wanted to make things right with them. And they did something here that many Christians would not be willing to do. Let's look at verse 19. Notwithstanding, 
If the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us, in building you an altar beside the Lord, beside the altar of the Lord our God. So these nine and a half tribes on the other side, they've already taken their possession. Uh, Joshua's already given that. They're already ready to settle into the land. Everything's been divided up. But what they offer here is that these two and a half tribes that are living on the other side of the Jordan, they say, what you can do, you can come back over into the land of Canaan, and we're willing to give up some of our land. We'll give it to you. If you'll just come over here and live among us and do the right thing, we'll give up our land, we'll give up some of our privileges, because we want you to get right with the Lord. That's something you don't see a lot of Christians doing. You know that? I mean, there are a lot of Christians that they're not willing to do any kind of personal sacrifice. They're not going to give up anything of theirs for anybody else. This is why I, I love our missionaries so much. I mean, we have missionaries that are, that are willing to leave the comforts of home. They leave the good old USA and all the modern conveniences that we have here, and they go to a foreign land to preach the gospel to people, and they're willing to do that because they'll sacrifice something. And this is what Israel was doing. And what they're teaching, or what this passage is teaching, is that our fellowship and our relationship with other Christians, that is the paramount thing in our lives. Now, so many people are concerned about what they have and getting their gain that they don't understand this, that the reason that God gives you anything, the reason that God gives you wealth and the reason that God prospers you is not for you alone. God does it so you can bless someone else. And when you bless someone else, God will bless you. Now, this also shows that they were willing to bear another's burden. Well, it's interesting here that Joshua is the one who gave the command for them to obey the laws of Moses. But when it happened, he didn't immediately call the law of Moses down on their heads. First, what Israel did was to try to make it right by going to their brothers and offering their land to live in a place for them to live among them. When Paul was dealing with the Galatians, he said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's a verse that really doesn't uh, refer to a, an habitual re, uh, an offender, but what it actually has reference to is someone who's fallen into a sin, they've done something wrong, and the thing for us to do, rather than, as I said a moment ago, to jump on that person with both of our feet, is the thing that we do, we try to restore them. We try to lift them up. We try to help them. We want to get over that sin so they can come back into the fellowship of the church again. So he says, fulfill the law of Christ when you do this. And the law of Christ is that we are to love those, love our brethren, those who exhibited faith in Christ. We're to do everything we can to put them back into fellowship with God. So this is exactly what Israel did. They're willing to bear the burden at their own expense if necessary. So sometimes you find out that reconciliation can be costly. It might cost you your pride. Sometimes it costs your rights. Sometimes it might even be something material that you have to give up in order to make things right with other people. But if that's what you can do in order to help someone, then the Bible teaches it's far better for you to be defrauded than it is to hurt that other person. Well, there's one other lesson that I think we can learn from this story. The third lesson is that repentance agrees with God's standards. 
Now, we're close to the end of the message, but we're now, we're just now getting to the real subject of what I wanted to talk about. The subject is, when your motive is right, but your method is wrong. It's a good thing that these tribes decided they would check this out before they went to war, because when they went over there to speak to the other tribes on the other side of the Jordan, they found out that it was true. What they heard was true. They did build that altar, but they didn't intend to use it as an altar of sacrifice. Rather, they said that we are setting this altar up as a memorial. Now, I'm just going to tell you the gist of what happens in the rest of the chapter. And uh, what you really ought to do is go home and read the rest of this yourself. Uh, Don't make me do all the work for you. Read it and find out if you can see something there to apply to your life. But what they found out is that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were only building the altar as a memorial. And they said, the reason that we've done this is we don't want our children to forget the God that we serve. And when, uh, when we move over here and we take possession of our land, we're going to be so far away from Shiloh that we need a place that we can look to to remind us of the God that we serve and, and of those sacrifices that are made in the proper place. So they're saying, we, we fully did not intend to make sacrifices. We're just using this so we can remember our God. And then they also said that, when the children of the other tribes in Israel look to our children and they, and they see that altar, or they might, they might say, now, what do you have to do with Israel? Who are you, anyway? You're on the wrong side of the Jordan. Who are you? And they could say, we could point to that altar, and we could say, we serve the very same God that you serve. Well, this is an interesting thing, because these tribes are the ones who, who made their own decision that they would live on the wrong side of the Jordan. And it looks like that they're already anticipating that there is a problem coming because they've decided to make that move. And so what they're doing here, they're sort of setting up their defenses here to blame the rest of Israel for their troubles. They're expecting that a problem will come, and if it comes, they're going to say, it's your fault because you misinterpret what we're doing over here. So they already see that there's a problem coming. And here's something that this teaches us. It teaches that if, if something is wrong, or you think that it's wrong before you do it, don't do it. Because most likely, if you are thinking that you're doing the wrong thing and you have to convince yourself to go ahead and do it, most likely it's the wrong thing to do. So just stop right there. So the altar seemed like a good idea at the time, but what they did was almost caused a war to happen. So they might have had the right motive. I and mean, they said, we're going to worship God. We, 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 we want this as a memorial. They have a right motive, but the method is completely wrong because this is not what God orders. But then when they gave the explanation, it did appease the rest of Israel, and so war was averted. Let me give you two more observations. We'll be through tonight. The first one, the willingness to repent is evidence of belief. If they had done wrong, they were willing to confess it. Verse 22 says, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day. So they say, if we're wrong about this, if we have done the wrong thing, we shouldn't have done it, then don't save us. You do what you have to do. You go ahead and do what God tells you to do. Then they went on and they gave the explanation about why they did this, and they explained them that it was a memorial. And they say in verse 29, God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings, for meat offerings, or for sacrifices, 
beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before his tabernacle. So what they do here is they agree with God's standard. And they show their willingness to do what God wanted them to do. And they were agreeing with the fact that if this is considered to be rebellion, then we're willing to take the consequences of it. And so that shows that they're true believers, actually. I mean, they were willing to repent of this It's the wrong if it's the wrong thing. You know, a few weeks ago in Sunday morning forum class, we were discussing about people who are seeking God, or at least appear to be seeking God, and God doesn't save them. And why doesn't God save a person who appears to be looking for him? Well, the problem is that there are many people that are seeking religion, and they're seeking a God of their own making, and they want God to be what they want them to be. So they want, want God to be on their terms, They're not going to repent of their sins because they don't agree with God's standard. They want their own standard. They're going to live by their own standard. And if God fits my standard, then God's okay. And if he doesn't, and if the church that they want to become a member of does not fit their standard, then they just keep looking for a church that does fit their standards, one that they can fit into. And you know that those secret churches, that's right up their alley. That's exactly what a secret church is there for. It's a church to make sure that you get the God that you want. And if you're not going to repent of your sins, that's all right with us. If you're going to habitually continue in sin, that's okay with us. Because the important thing here is that God loves you no matter what. Whether you continue in your sin or not, God still loves you. And that's the most important thing. Folks, I want to tell you, that doesn't work. Because real repentance and real salvation always agrees with God's standards. You have to meet God's standard. Then finally, we see here, the consequences of disobedience are just. When you understand God's standard of righteousness, then you'll understand that punishment for breaking his law is the just thing. So these two and a half tribes, they don't even argue for a moment about this. Uh, uh, They they say, well, if we're in rebellion against God, then we're not going to argue with it. You're doing exactly the right thing. What you should do, you should come in and destroy us all. If we're in rebellion against God. Why would they say that? Well, these are the same folks that just came off of seven years of fighting to subdue the land against heathenish pagans that were against Jehovah God. So they understand the principle very well. You don't follow the Lord, you're going to get killed for it. And they said, if that's what you're going to do to us, you're doing the right thing if we're in rebellion. And folks, when a person comes to the realization that, uh, uh, and if he's going to be saved, he has to understand that God's wrath against him is just. Every person, every sinner deserves the fires of hell. We might think we're pretty good people and that God shouldn't do such things to us, but we absolutely do deserve hell. And that's why that we need a Savior. And so when we see the awfulness of sin and we see the just consequences of sin... That's when we're ready to trust Christ for salvation. And so then, when these two and a half tribes, when when they showed their contrition, and they showed what the true motive was, then Israel was satisfied. Look at verses 33 and 34. And the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God and did not intend to go up against them in battle to destroy the land wherein the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar Ed. Ed means witness. Anybody here named Ed tonight? I don't think there's any Eds in here. Ed means witness. So this was the altar of witness. For it shall be a witness between us that the Lord is God. Now let me close the message tonight with this thought. Make sure that your motive and your method are right. 
Jesus said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know who he spoke those words to? Anybody know right off the top of your head? Who did he speak those words to? The woman at the well. This is John chapter 4. He's speaking to the woman at the well. And did you know that the Samaritans did exactly what these two and a half tribes, they thought that they intended to do? The, these people in Samaria worshipped at Mount Gerizim rather than worshipping at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, here's what happens to these two and a half tribes of Israel. They, in fact, were the first ones to go into apostasy. This altar that they built for this great memorial to show their children um, that they served the true God, it didn't actually work because they end up going into apostasy. They forsook the Lord. And here's what happens. Eventually, if your method does not catch up with your motive, then you're going to be in trouble. So if your method is wrong, what you need to do is change your method to line up with the right motive. And when you have that right, that's when you're worshiping God in spirit and truth. Now, my last comment about this is this is the very reason why I am so glad that I am a Baptist. If I didn't think that our practice was right, I would be something else. I'd find some other church to go to and I'd study some other theology But I'm just glad that God put me into a place like Berean Baptist Church where I can learn the truth of God's Word. And so I know, or I have confidence, that we've got the method and the motive lined up to be exactly what God wants it to be. And we thank the Lord for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we learn from your Word. We praise your name, Lord, for your righteousness and your justice. But at the same time, we have to be thankful for your mercy. We deserved hell, and yet you came into this world to save us from our sins. And we thank you for that. Bless us in this time of invitation tonight. And may we ever remember, Lord, that we are to worship you in the right way, to serve you in the right way. And there is an acceptable way for us to serve you. Bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.